Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The following episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad was recorded while Mr Hill was suffering from a severe cold. We apologise for any mucoidal coughs, gulps, slurps or wheezes that may detract from your listening pleasure. So hello and welcome to this fifth episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name is Ed Hill and just to explain in a nanoparticle what this podcast involves, it's basically me reading and talking about the journals that my great-great-grandfather William Mowbray Scott wrote right back in the 1840s. I should explain I do at the beginning of each podcast, that these journals have never been published or printed in any form anywhere else before. So this is the first time that people outside my family are getting a chance to hear them and discover what's in them. So they cover my great-great-grandfather's journeys essentially around the world, firstly to work as an engineer and train driver on what basically was the first commercial railway in Italy, in Milan, and then his subsequent journeys after doing that job back through Europe, back to the UK, then across the Atlantic out to Mexico, where he then ends up working as an engineer in the mint or coin making industry. And that happens also to to coincide with the time of the Mexican-USA War of the mid-1840s. So basically, the podcast consists of me reading a bit from the journal and then uh, stopping occasionally to just explain a little bit more about some of the references that William may have made, some of the historical things that he's mentioning, and some of the places that he's uh, describing, and also occasionally to comment on some of his views and opinions that he expresses as well, which in a modern context may at times seem a bit odd but reveal maybe the attitudes of the time about certain things. If you want to discover more about the origin of the journals, their history, uh, their links to my family and how they've been preserved and uh, how I've transcribed them for this podcast then um, you can listen to the first introduction episode of the journals where I go into more detail about that aspect of them. Now, just to say that when I first played one of these podcasts to my wife, she did say, oh, yeah, no, it's it's, it's good. You know, I mean, you, you, you probably don't need all that um, bit where you're talking. <laughs> you know, you just, just, just read from the journals. And she's probably got a good point. <laughs> but there we are. Nothing like a supportive partner in life, is there? And 
She's nothing like boom, 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 boom. I could finish the, the rest. No, she's very supportive. But I think actually, to a modern listener, there are just too many things that really don't mean very much to us and so need explaining. And also, part of this podcast is really also my response to the things that William Mowbray Scott talks about and what he does. You know, in the in in the context that he was a relative of mine, and maybe there's some hereditary thing going on there. Who knows? I mean, why why do they do programs like Who Do You Think You Are? You know, we all think our family history in some way maybe has some influence on, on us down the generations. So who knows? But it's interesting to reflect. So just to explain where we've finished with the last podcast and where we're beginning with this one. Uh, in the last one, William, he's got to Paris and he's spent quite a few days in Paris, basically just seeing the sights and sounds much in the same way as we would now seeing the tourist attractions, except he's mainly doing it by foot, I think. And there wasn't any such thing as a Paris metro then back in the 1840s, so um, unless he was going to hop onto a horse and carriage, he'd probably have to use Shanks's pony, as they say. Interesting term, that. Anyone who's uh, outside of the UK and doesn't know what the term Shanks's pony is, it just basically means walking. I don't know where it comes from. That's uh, another bit of research I'll have to do, maybe. From the Scottish word shanks, meaning legs, as in Edward Longshanks, King Edward I, Shanks's pony. So he's doing his sightseeing, he's walked across the bridges of Paris, he's gone round Notre Dame Cathedral, and then this next podcast begins with him going to the Chardin's plants. Please forgive my French pronunciation, it's not always great. But the Jardin des Plants is, a, you know, it's a, exactly as he describes it then, it's a zoological and botanical garden in Paris. It's still there today. And it began as a medicinal garden back, I think, in the 1640s, something like that, by Louis XIII had it built. But then it evolves into, if you like, a place where they also have animals and exhibitions of uh, plants, collections of plants. And there are some cultivated and there are some in collections so basically a, a museum of natural history, really. I haven't been to the Jardin de Plants, so I am don't know quite what it's like now, but we'll be hearing about William's description of it, of how it was then. So we'll begin with William walking around the Jardin des Plants. found myself at the Jardin de Plans, or Zoological and Botanical Gardens of Paris. This enormous establishment consists of a botanical garden with an immense number of hothouses and conservatories, and a very large space of ground where all the known plants that will bear exposure are cultivated. A gallery of considerable length where the lions, tigers, spelt with a Y, <laughs> leopards and other ravenous beasts are kept with strong iron bars being fixed in front of each den, and a railing about four feet from the walls to prevent careless visitors from attaining a too dangerous proximity. There are fine large pits in which the bears are kept, and trees fixed in the centre to allow those animals to amuse themselves by climbing. 
there are also large numbers of the deer, elk and goat species, mostly in pairs, each with their little enclosure, and pretty rustic buildings for the purpose of shade and shelter. There is also an aviary in which there is an immense collection of birds of every size, variety and plumage. Every den and cage is labelled with the name of the animal inhabiting it, of what country it is a native, the name of the person who presented it, and the month and year of the admission of it into the garden. This splendid establishment also contains a gallery where all the mineral kingdom is scientifically arranged. A cabinet of all the skeletons of animals, birds and reptiles for the study of comparative anatomy. Also, a library of 70,000 volumes presenting a rich and varied collection of works relating to the natural sciences, herbaria, that's a dried plant collection, designs of plants and flowers and paintings of animals, a chemical laboratory and courses of lectures, each department which affords study for a lifetime and can only be merely glanced at by a casual visitor like myself. The grounds are laid out in the most beautiful style and I quitted the place with great regret that my stay in Paris would not allow me to devote a much longer period of time of becoming acquainted with its valuable and interesting stores of knowledge. So I'm going to stop at this point where William is discussing the Jardin des Plants. Now his description of the zoo here, I should say it's not William doing a bit of what we might term in modern terms mansplaining when uh, you know he talks about the, the cages because I must admit, the first time I read this, I thought, well, yeah, well, it's a zoo, isn't it? It's a zoo. You're talking about a zoo. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's got animals in it. It's got cages and they've got uh, labels on the cages saying what the animal is and where it came from. It's a zoo. <laughs> but then I thought about it a bit more and I thought, well, hang on. What is the history of zoos? And the truth of the matter is that William probably would have never up until this point, have been to a zoo. The earliest or oldest, what they call scientific zoo, is um, London Zoo, which opened in 1831. 1828-1831. It didn't actually open to the public until 1847. So that would have been um, seven years after William is walking around Paris looking at this animal collection in Jardin des Plants. And so, of course, he's nearly 40 and he probably never have been to a zoo before. These days, we grow up as children. I don't know, we're probably taken to a zoo when we're children, you know, maybe as early as toddlers. But this is something William wouldn't have encountered before. So... In his rather simplistic description of what a zoo is, it kind of makes sense when you put it in that context. Um, <laughs> in fact, of course, there had been collections of animals before this time. What we think of as zoos now, scientific zoos, was very much a kind of 19th century invention. Before that, another term we're probably familiar with, they would have used the word menagerie. But the distinction, if you like, was a menagerie was a collection of exotic animals that was often put together by kings and aristocrats and partly maybe as a demonstration of how wealthy they were and how important they were. In fact, there are apparently records of that dating 
as far back as William the Conqueror, who apparently had a, a collection of exotic animals, but they weren't necessarily open to the public. So if you like, the idea of a zoo or a collection of animals where the public could come in and see them was a relatively new one when William was walking around the Jardin des Plants in Paris. And actually that botanical garden that he's talking about was actually originally first built in 1635 and that was founded by Louis Thirteenth. So it was, if you like, under the king's auspice. After the French Revolution, it was indeed, again, this maybe this, what you want to call, spirit of rationalism came in and they then the National Assembly then, as it was called, or, or you know, the sort of parliament that came out of the French Revolution, uh, decreed that the Jardin des Plantes should become, if you like, a more scientific and educational establishment than it had been prior to that time. So that is really why it sort of changed into this centre of research and science that William's talking about here. And at that time, there were some animals that had been in a collection at Versailles, and a lot of these were transferred to these animal enclosures at the Jardin des Plantes as part of this exercise of making it a more public access type of building for people. Apparently, unfortunately, when they first moved the animals, they weren't very well looked after and um, didn't have the right facilities and a lot of them died. So again, it wasn't until Napoleon came along what with his eye on the detail and infrastructure, and he insisted that more resources were put into this place, better cages were built, and the animals were looked after better. So again, you could say London Zoo claims to be the oldest scientific zoo, but I think it's a little bit of spinning an idea, because at this time it appears that the Jardin des Plants was essentially a zoo too, in everything but name. It just didn't perhaps call itself at that stage a scientific zoo. Going back to Napoleon and his involvement with the Jardin des Plantes, that was also a time where, if you like, the Natural History Museum of France was established. That is still there in the Jardin des Plantes gardens. So it's very like that area of South Kensington where you've got the Natural History Museum, the Geological Museum, the Science Museum all together. And that is the equivalent case in the Jardin des Plantes in Paris. Around about this time, the most famous animal apparently that was there was a giraffe that was given to Charles X in 1827 by the Sultan of Cairo. I should have said this at the beginning. It's one of these cases where you read the journal and you think, well, that's an obvious thing as to what that is. It's a zoo, isn't it? Why is William going into this explanation of it? And it's not until you realise, you know, he's not man explaining, he's not going, it is a zoo with cages and animals in it with signs saying what they are. It's an experience that to us in modern times seems very familiar to us now, but to William it wasn't. And there are other instances of this in the journals a bit later on in the second volume when he's travelling across the Atlantic, and I think it's when he stops at one of the Caribbean islands and he's eating one of the fruits that he gets introduced to there and he starts explaining he's eating this pear-shaped fruit and as he carries on explaining it you begin to realize well well, it's an avocado isn't it you know he talks about the rough skin and the flesh and the big stone in the middle it's an avocado he calls it by some other more local name but you're going it's an avocado William but of course he wouldn't have seen an avocado an avocado an avocado avocado 
until this point. So we have to kind of, at times, put ourselves in William's shoes uh, to understand, you know, why he's explaining these new experiences to to us in the journals. And, <laughs> I mean, if you haven't seen an avocado, you haven't seen an avocado. It reminds me of my mum. My mum used to tell this mad story that always made my wife laugh because she used to rent out a little cottage and she used to have students staying in it and I think she had one set of students who came from I think from Ireland and for some reason I don't know maybe she cooked them a meal one day cooked them a dinner or or something and she 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 was talking about the fact these little green spherical objects arrived on their plate and um, that they were aghast at seeing these things and and my mum said well of course they'd never seen peas And this always made my Alison and myself chuckle. This was the 1970s. I think Irish people had seen peas by 1970. But um, I don't know, maybe they were looking at ghast, probably looking at ghast at the massive slab of pork or beef or chicken that she dumped on their <laughs> she dumped on their dinner plates. So that's probably the reason they looked more aghast than the fact that they had some peas there. But I don't know. If anyone does know the history of peas in Ireland, um, they're welcome to get in touch with me and explain <laughs> if by nineteen, if by nineteen seventy there was such a thing as a pea in your culinary delights. But there we are. I suppose it's my mum. William was her great grandfather rather than great great grandfather, so maybe it runs in the the family, sort of <laughs> explaining these rather obvious things to people. But in this case, I think it's genuinely understandable why William would explain in very simplistic terms what a zoo is. Proceeding from thence towards the city, my attention was attracted to a very large pile of buildings forming a square. I therefore entered one of its gates, and in a few moments found myself in the centre of one of Napoleon's great works, namely the wine stores that supply this great city. Although unable to speak the language, I was civilly invited to pass through the place, and the thousands and thousands of large casks of all the various wines that greeted my sight was astonishing all arranged in the most regular and beautiful order. Champagne, Bordeaux, Bordeaux Lafitte, Chateau Marguet, and a hundred others that it would be impossible to recollect. I was very much astonished and gratified at the sight, as well as the civility and attention of everyone I saw there. I next visited the Church of the Pantheon, an edifice which is allowed to be the happiest effort of French architecture. It is built in the form of a Greek cross, 340 feet long and 250 wide. The porch of the principal entrance is composed of a triple range of fluted Corinthian columns, 58 feet high and five and a half in diameter, supporting a triangular pediment. The front of the porch is 120 feet long. The dome is composed of two stories, the lower of which is surrounded by 30 Corinthian columns, supporting a gallery of balustrade. The upper story is plain and is surmounted by the cupola, that's another word for dome, which is 62 feet 8 inches in diameter. 
It is lighted by a small circular lantern, the height of which, from the interior pavement, is 282 feet. The first impression produced by viewing this edifice is of the superiority it derives from its portico being of single storey only, projecting with an impressive depth of shade and magnificence of columns, whilst the transepts behind it give a breadth and solidity to the whole edifice, which preserve its proportions with the superstructure. The dome is light and graceful, though at the same time it can hardly be said to approach sublimity. The interior of the Pantheon is eminently graceful in its effect. The style of decoration is rich. The pillars are Corinthian, and the vaulted roof finished with basso-reliefs. The vaults beneath the church were some years back arranged as places of sculpture, and in those sarcophagi repose many of the dignitaries of the empire and kingdom. It had now reached the hour of five, and at being a considerable distance from my hotel, to which the wants of the inward man tended to hasten me, I pursued my way as quickly as possible, and on my arrival was greeted by the sight of a good dinner, to which I did ample justice. I'm going to break in here again. I did say that I wasn't going to uh, interrupt too much during these podcasts to waffle on, but I think this is one of those moments where uh, I really have to, and also it's interesting too, because uh, it really helps to explain what William has just been talking about. And also, we're in Paris as well, and of course there are a lot of sights and sounds that William's um, encountering while he's there, so in a way Paris is going to be a bit history-heavy as we go through William's journey. Going through these journals again, it does demonstrate why Napoleon does create such an impression on William, because when he's going round, there's so many things that he seems to have been involved with, instigated in terms of the infrastructure and uh, all the other sort of public buildings that he was involved in. And I thought it'd be quite interesting to talk a little bit about this wine market, because let's face it, who doesn't mind a drop of wine? I know I do. In fact, I might crack open a bottle in a minute. Uh, <laughs> get me through this. But the, that wine market was known as the Hall of Vin. Hall of Wines. Uh, Marvellous. My French skills are coming on leaps and bounds. Like a lot of things Williams talks about, it's not there anymore. But it was instigated by Napoleon. And it was right on the River Seine. And it was next to the Jardin des Plantes. So it kind of makes sense when Williams talking about going from there and then to the wine market. Uh, but the Hall en Vin was right on the banks of the River Seine on the what's called the Quisson Barnard area. And it was um, a massive wine holding area. It was 13 and a half hectares in area. So so to, to do that in that more simplistic measurement terms, that's about 18 football pitches, which is a varying measurement because football pitches vary. But roughly it's 18 football pitches. So that's a pretty big area, and apparently it could hold 150,000 items of wine, and that was probably barrels of wine. I don't know why they use that term, but uh, it's probably barrels rather than bottles. And it didn't just store wine, it was also a storage place for what's known as eau de vie, um, which is basically a kind of clear 
brandy, usually made from fruit, raspberries, pears, things like that. And that was actually something that was drunk very widely by the French uh, public at the time, uh, particularly the poor, because it was cheap. It sounds a little bit like gin in Hogarth's time in uh, London, because gin was very cheap, and so the poor used to drink that a lot as well. So I think uh, eau de vie, which translates as the water of life, Juju's fire water. No, no, it's a uh, water of life. Anyway, I imagine the concoction that was brewed at this time, I imagine it was just a mixture of loads of fruit. So if I chuck anything in, I would have thought apples, pears, raspberries. But you can still get it. Now it looks like quite a sophisticated drink, but at that time it was really a drink for the, the masses, as it were. Part of the reason Napoleon wanted this wine hall set up, and it's described as... Uh, it can take 150 barrels of wine. 150,000. Both covered and uncovered. And it was actually not fully completed till 1845. So when William's uh, walking around it, it's nearly finished, but not quite. But the reason for doing it was basically just because wine consumption massively increased. It sort of quadrupled uh, from sort of 1800 to 1850. And um, also there was a kind of... I suppose it's a sort of tax thing. Wine that was stored here, I think I'm getting this right, it didn't have to, what they call, pay a grant to travel out of Paris. If it was exported along the Seine, then it could go to other parts of France and it didn't have to pay a charge for going across regional borders. So perhaps it was deliberately set up by Napoleon as a way of increasing the wine business. And... Later, this building that William's talking about had to be made even bigger. I think they virtually rebuilt it again in the 1870s on an even larger site, but eventually it got demolished. It's not there now, but it is, or it was, sorry, in the area of Keith St. Bernard, right on the Seine. Of course, the other thing that was massively increasing the wine trade around France and Europe was something William was very much involved with which was the development of the steam train so that was another reason why the wine business and the consumption of wine increased massively uh, i just briefly go on to this pantheon building that william talks about next visiting so that was built between 1758 and 1790 uh, at the behest of louis XV. Um, so originally it was going to be a big church to saint genevieve if you look at the building it is Obviously, it's called the Pantheon. It's based on the Pantheon in Rome, so it's got a big dome. It sort of also looks a little bit like St Paul's as well, although it does have this big portico on the front that William describes. I thought I should just briefly here explain, because he'll say this quite a lot, and I don't want to get too much into the architectural descriptions that William does, because there are a lot of them. But just to help people put you in a picture a little bit, um, if you're not familiar, you may be but if you're not familiar with some of the Greek architectural terms, to be honest, I only know some of these because in a former life I was involved in architectural stonemasonry, so I had to learn uh, a lot of these classical architectural terms as well. When he talks about the order of the columns, there's the three basic orders of Greek architecture, and it's all to do with what's at the top of the column. And so you have the Doric order, and you have the ionic order and you have the corinthian order the corinthian order which is, seems to be the one william mentioned the most and i sometimes think he gets these wrong but the corinthian order is 
if you like, at the top of the column, you have its, uh, if you like, leaves spreading out uh, to support the beam or entablature going across. Uh, now, they're a particular plant, and I can't remember. Acanthus plant. The acanthus plant. But anyway, it's the most, if you like, decorative-looking top of a column with all these sort of plants and leaves going up to support the bean. The Ionic Order is like two circular sort of scrolls that are at the top of the column. So um, they almost look like two eyes in a way, but they're, they're actually scrolls. Again, they're at the top of the column and then the entablature goes across the top. And then the simplest form is the Doric Order, which is, if you like, it's just like a round... Um, bit at the top of the column with a flat bit on top and then the entablature sits on that so I just thought I'd mention it because William does use these terms quite a lot so to carry on sorry about the Pantheon so this big church building a little bit looks a bit like St Paul's was going to be a church again as with a lot of things the French Revolution happened I suppose you could say it was an anti-religion movement in that sense a bit like communism well what was it religion is the opium of the people according to Karl Marx so when the French Revolution happened a lot of this as we saw with the zoo at the uh, Jardin des Plantes there was a thought of changing it into a more utilitarian or useful type of function for a building and so the Pantheon was changed from being a church after the French Revolution they decided that they would turn it into a mausoleum for the great and the good of France and it's still that to this day basically so a bit like we have Poets Corner in uh, Westminster Abbey this is the French equivalent but on a much bigger scale because the whole building is uh, dedicated to interring the famous and noteworthy people of France so just briefly to say some of the people who are buried there so you've got uh, Voltaire I think he's sometimes described as France's Shakespeare, Victor Hugo, Les Miserables author, Emile Zola, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, if anybody knows the story of The Little Prince, a children's book that he wrote that's very famous. And the last person to be interred there in 2021 was Josephine Baker. She was a black actress and singer who essentially kind of made her career in Europe but she was also importantly in terms of this regard sort of a spy and a member of the French resistance and so she of course in France is recognised as a great hero and when they say they're entombed some of them are actually entombed in the sense that their remains are actually in the Pantheon others as in her case and in Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's case because he was flying in a plane in the second world war and it crashed and his remains were never identified and uh, they're sort of symbolic uh, if you like internments and hers is a similar one and in 2021 when they did it they um, took a bit of soil from her birthplace in I think it's in Missouri and also a bit of soil from where she's actually buried which is in uh, Monaco Apparently she was the first black lady to star in a film, and it was called Siren of the Tropics. It was a French film, but uh, if you look up Josephine Baker, I mean, obviously she was uh, very, very brave and 
interesting human being. So I, I'll let you do that. But uh, I suppose she's noteworthy because she was the last person only in 2021, so not long ago, to be celebrated in the Pantheon. Just one other thing to say about the Pantheon. William describes the height of the dome. And also when he's describing that building, obviously that must be one of these points where he is uh, using a reference book. I'm sure all these sort of facts and figures he talks about its height and its depth and its width. I'm sure he must be using some reference book or perhaps he took a guidebook with him at the time and had kept it. I don't know. But the other thing about the Pantheon now, a scientist called Louis, F Louis Foucault, F Foucault, Foucault, Leon Foucault. He used the height of the dome to dangle, to dangle, uh, <clears throat> dot, 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 no, to suspend. How about that? That's a better word, isn't it? Suspend. Um, it's a pendulum, and on the end of it, it had a ball that weighed 62 pounds. It, well, sorry, there's a replica of it there, so it's still there if you go there. From the top of the dome, all the way down to the centre, obviously, and he did this to demonstrate the rotation of the Earth. And this ball, apparently, if you watch it over a period of time, it swings very gently to and fro over this sort of um, circular table, and which actually the time, I think, is, is uh, marked. But what it actually demonstrates is if you watch its path, each time it swings, it, it, the angle changes ever so slightly. So it's going back and forth, back and forth, like a pendulum. And each time it goes round, a bit like a kind of spirograph thing, I suppose, in a way, and it maps out this track of going round and round the table. And so I don't quite understand all the physics of it, but by doing that, it sort of demonstrates that the Earth is spinning because this motion that comes onto this pendulum is caused by the rotation of the Earth. And so it's called Foucault's Pendulum, and he put it up there in uh, 1851, so a few years after William's walking around the building. Uh, but it, there's a copy of it there. The, the original one's in some museum somewhere, but the, the copy, they put a copy in there. Um, apparently, it wasn't that long ago that the wire broke <laughs> and it smashed the marble floor below. So someone wasn't keeping an eye on the old pendulum enough to maintain it. So that is the Pantheon. So uh, back to William after he's had his goodly supper that he's done full justice to. He does a lot of justice to his dinners. I'm eating that justice. <laughs> I'm going to eat my sausage and eat that justice. March the 19th. This was Sunday morning, but Sunday is no more in Paris than any other day, and accordingly I found the shops open and the people at work the same as any other morning. And so I was like the rest of the Parisians in not making it a rest day either, but I had chosen a spot to visit on this day that perhaps might be more in harmony with English feeling, though I was compelled to notice the different objects on my route. Passing, therefore, from my hotel in the Rue Travassière saint Honore, I entered the Rue Richelieu, at that point where the monument to Molière is now placed. At a short distance up this street is a large square where the Italian Opera House formerly stood. 
and where the Duke of Berry was assassinated in the act of getting into his carriage in the year 1820. So just to very briefly explain, the Duke de Berry, he was the youngest son of Charles X, and he was assassinated in 1820. He was coming out of the opera with his wife, and a man called Louvel rushed up to his carriage as he was helping his wife, pregnant wife, get into the carriage and was stabbed with a, a dagger in the side. And he didn't die immediately. He, he died about two days later of his wounds. And the Duke de Berry was considered a bit of a wayward son of Charles X because he'd had various mistresses and had married a Protestant lady in England when he was there, living in exile. And then he abandoned her to come back to France and remarried this uh, royal lady, whose name escapes me now, who was um, who he was helping into the carriage. Anyway, he seems to have rehabilitated himself in the eyes of the French public a little bit by the way in which he died and he acted to a degree more selflessly when he was dying because doctors were trying to suck the blood out from the wound and he insisted they didn't in case the dagger had been poisoned and stuff like that. And uh, Louvel was tried and later killed by the guillotine in the Place de Greve, which we talked about earlier as the spot where the guillotine stood and a lot of public executions took place. Louvel's reason, or rationale, for assassinating the Duke of Berry was basically he hated the Bourbon kings. Um, you know, it was again this struggle between the hangover of the revolution and uh, also Napoleon Bonaparte being in power, and he was described as a Bonapartist, but certainly an anti-royalist, and so he chose to assassinate the Duke of Berry, and, and then of course was executed himself. Apparently a massive crowd gathered to see his execution. Public opinion, very fickle. Anyway, but it was an assassination, I think, because of the nature of it, because of his wife being pregnant and stuff like that. His sort of, his heroic way of dying was a shock to the nation. That's what William's referring to here. He's talking about where this opera house, where the Duke had been exiting when he was assassinated. It being the property of the government, it was immediately shut up and was shortly afterwards pulled down, and one of the most splendid fountains of Paris was erected on its site. This beautiful specimen of ornament and utility consists of three basins, the lower one of marble and not less than 60 feet in diameter. Above this is another supported by 12 dolphins spouting out large streams of water from their nostrils. On the second basin stand eight most exquisitely formed female figures, in each of which is a large vase of the Etruscan form, the water flowing from the spouts. The other hand supports the upper and smallest basin, from which rise four powerful jets d'eau. don't know why he chooses to say that in French there. <laughs> it's a bit erratic sometimes with the, with the way he says things. He could have said, Four powerful water jets, but the decides to call jets the uh, yeah. The water flowing from the upper edge of the upper basin in one unbroken transparent sheet. The whole of the upper figures and upper basins are of bronze. At a short distance in the same street is the Royal Library, the foundation of which goes as far back as the reign of Charles V. 
It is a vast but gloomy-looking building containing no less than 600,000 volumes and 80,000 manuscripts. Proceeding at a short distance further, I entered the boulevards, and I certainly must confess there is not a street in London to equal them. Their great width showing off the large and lofty houses of seven and eight stories in height. The broad and spacious footpaths, the shady trees that in hot weather give coolness and refreshment to the scene, the graceful winding form giving you beauty and variety to the sight as you proceed. The shops were filled with goods of every description, and as I noticed before, the Sunday in Paris is not the same as the Sunday in London. Bricklayers, carpenters and masons were pursuing their usual avocations, that's employment. Heavily laden carts with stone and other building materials were thronging the streets. The bells of the churches certainly were sounding in every direction. I looked into several of them during the day, but their congregations appeared to consist entirely of old women and children. I do not suppose that it is the case with all the French people, but it does seem to me that a great majority of Parisians of both sexes have neither religion nor morality about them. Those who do not work on the Sunday generally spend the day in dissipation. That's uh, another word for it's like overindulgence. And finish the evening either at the theatre or some of those ballrooms in the Faubourg. So the Faubourg was, uh, uh, it's not there now, but it was a suburb of Paris that was kind of known, if you like, for its, um, let's shall we say, less salubrious goings-on. And it was uh, considered... A place of the working classes and, and quite a dangerous area to be found in at night. He carries on talking about the Faubourg, where the greatest licentiousness and profligacy prevails, and in my perambulations of the boulevards I noticed no less than six theatres with their accompanying cafes, wine shops, hotels, etc., fitted up in the most luxuriant manner and hung with paintings of the most lascivious and reductive kind thus spreading snares of all kinds for the young and unwary. So William, once again, very concerned about uh, the lascivious publications and pictures and paintings on show in France, uh, obviously of great concern to him. Seems to have something against there being so many theatres in, in Paris as well. <laughs> well... Sometimes it does sound a bit of a killjoy, old Will. I should perhaps um, reiterate again at this point that maybe these pictures are lascivious, as he describes them, because, uh, regrettably, prostitution was very widespread in Paris, and particularly in this area that, that, at that time. So I suppose in passing he may be seeing these um, lascivious pictures that they may be in some way denoting that uh, this is an area a sort of a, a bit of a red light area of Paris maybe I don't know I'm just speculating I'm speculating in a uh, what's the word titillating sort of way <laughs> in a in a vain and desperate attempt to get more people listening to the podcast I'm adding a bit of titillation for you there so uh, <laughs> oh dear <clears throat> desperate times in desperate measures. And obviously in France, uh, Sunday trading, as uh, they say, was something that was going on well back in the uh, 1840s. I don't think we began doing Sunday trading and the shops opening as usual as the rest of the week in the UK until 
well, it's uh, been in my lifetime, put it that way. Uh, was it about 20 years ago, I reckon? Um, might have to find out when Sunday trading laws were introduced so that Sunday, so that shops could open the same as every other day. 1994. Actually, well, that's not quite true because, in fact, we still have Sunday opening hours which are actually reduced. So even in Britain to this day, Sunday is not the same as any other day um, because it's the shops can open from 10, the big shops anyway, can open from 10 till 4 rather than, I don't know, the normal 8 till, well, 10 o'clock sometimes now. But yeah, on a Sunday it's restricted till 10 till 4. That That's essentially because uh, in the UK we are God-fearing people, um, unlike the... Uh, the hedonistic French. <laughs> so, probably going to pretty well end the podcast at this point. I was actually going to go on a little bit further, but uh, realised that actually time is already getting on quite a bit for this episode, so decided that I would uh, end it here anyway. So it's quite a good point to finish it, with uh, William being uh, a little bit outraged and concerned for the young and unwary so really that's it for this episode if you've been listening to it i hope you've enjoyed it if you have please tell your friends and also sign up to subscribe so that you can keep up to date with the latest episodes as they're released so i look forward to welcoming you to the next episode of a grand tour with my great great granddad. If you have been, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.